Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Bible and Me podcast. In this episode, Graham Daniels of Christians in Sport speaks to Nigel about football, spreading the gospel through sport, and how the Bible has impacted his life in a great way. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speaking and may not represent the views of Preset Ministries UK. We hope and pray that this podcast will bless you in your walk of faith. If it does, leave us a rating or review and subscribe for more podcasts every Friday. And now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, I am delighted to welcome Graham Daniels, uh, known as Dano, uh, a fine sportsman to the program today. I'm not sure we've had any other professional sportsmen actually uh, on the program, so it's great to have you. Um, Graham is the general director of Christians in Sport and also a director of Cambridge United Football Club. Uh, he grew up in Wales, played football for Cardiff City uh, while studying philosophy at Cardiff University. After leaving uh, Cardiff Football Club, he moved to play for Cambridge United and then Cambridge City Football Clubs. Uh, he's been a football manager. He's been a BBC broadcaster for Radio Cambridgeshire. And he became general director of the Christiansen Sport in April 2002. Dano, welcome to the programme. It's lovely I'm to have you. Absolutely delighted, Nigel. I've listened to enough of the programme, so I'm glad to be on it. I'm thrilled, honoured. Oh, oh, that's wonderful. So, how did you become a follower of Jesus? I mean, did you grow up in a Christian home? How, how did that whole thing uh, happen for you? Being a Welsh child, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so therefore it was a chapel background as it would have been called then so we everybody went to Sunday school really uh, that probably ended in my generation but I would have been a child who went to Sunday school mm. uh, as a boy my mother was a Christian my dad became a Christian later in life much later after my mother had died actually uh, so I certainly had an infrastructure uh, a solid infrastructure of church leading to ethics it wouldn't have been particularly evangelical, mm -hmm. um, uh, but it would have been somewhere where one knew the Bible. You knew lots of Bible stories yeah. and, and a regular church attendance. So my mum was a praying woman, so there's no question that that was the greatest influence in me becoming a Christian. Mm. Then what looks like more spectacular but isn't because a praying parent is the more spectacular thing, isn't it? But what looks from the outside more spectacular was that uh, I met a boy when I was 15 at school. I was picked for the school cricket team. I thought because I was good, but it was actually because they were short of a player. <laughs> I thought they were calling me out because I was really good. Uh, and I jumped on the bus and then I discovered the real reason. Um, but the captain of cricket was a really, really good sportsman. He was in the upper sixth. He'd been 18 years of age. I was 15-ish. Um, so, of course, I didn't know anybody on this bus uh, to the game. It was a 50-mile journey. To, to Cardiff from a little town in West Wales. We went to Cardiff to play. He sat next to me to be kind, really, because I didn't have anyone to chat to. And it was a Monday, and I said to him uh, on the way back, what did you do at the weekend? He said he played cricket Saturday, and he went to church Sunday. Now, at 15, I didn't really know anyone who went to church, really. Because as a child, I went to Sunday school, but I'd stopped by then. Right. And I was surprised, because he was a kind of big guy at school. Uh, and I said, why did he go to church? Did his mother still make him go to church at 18? Yeah. And he said, no, it's because I followed Jesus. Now, instead of telling the whole story in one go, basically, let me get to that point where it's 15, yeah. 
for the first time in my life, I'm thinking, oh, wow. Somebody, in my eyes, really cool, could follow Jesus, not just people of my mother's age. <laughs> so it moved from being a second-hand idea to a first-hand possibility mm. at that point. Mm. So that's why... Actually started the journey. Really, mm. and you then what started investigating Jesus for yourself, or, or became more involved with Christian things, or how did that yeah, pan I mean, out over the next? Yeah, a mixture of those things. He was a fantastic witness for Jesus, and I learned a lot from him mm. for later in life. Mm. I actually turned to Christ when I was twenty-one, okay. so it's a six-year gap. Yeah, um, in that period, of course, uh, sport takes off. So I end up spending a lot of my life driving to Cardiff for holidays and weekends and staying over, yeah. uh, trying to do studies, exams, football. Mm. So life becomes very full, yeah. exciting. Yeah. Uh, there was a common thread in that six years, and it was this friend. Uh, wherever I was, I lived in Cardiff, I moved to Cambridge. He was a true friend. He was interested in me. Mm. Uh, he would write to me, pre-emails and all the things that we have now, mm. proper letters. Mm. Talking about Christianity, as as you mentioned, I did philosophy uh, uh, as an undergrad whilst playing at Cardiff, yeah. and he would try his best to deal with the philosophical questions. Yeah. So he was a faithful friend. Amazing. And at the age of twenty one, uh, I started to play for Cambridge, which was a move away from home for me, the other end of the country. I was more isolated, mm. um, and then the penny really started to drop. I had time to read the Bible. I started reading the Gospels. Um, and I, I, I can remember, it, it, there's years behind this of prayer and friendship, mm. but I, I know there was a definitive moment where I went public. And it was, um, I was reading the New Testament one Wednesday evening in my digs in Cambridge near the football club, and I read 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And as a philosopher... Yeah an amateur philosopher, I thought, oh my word, that's a truth claim. If Christ did rise from the dead, then you're not in your sins. Or, if he didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile. Mm. It's true or false. Mm. And perhaps for the first time in my life, I thought, oh my word, this is an empirical claim on which I have to make a decision yeah. that becomes an existential experience that I've seen in others. Mm. And I did. Uh, and I gave my life to Christ that night. I went to work the next day in the dressing room and the chap said where were you last night because they'd gone out for a drink or something and I thought oh well go for it and I said what my friend had told me on the bus because it was the only <laughs> reference point I had I said I decided to follow Jesus oh. so I was off yeah. off and running yeah, yeah. and that was it yeah. fantastic fantastic now if you mention sport and Wales to people mm. uh, maybe this is just people that live in England I don't know but me most would say that Wales is famous for its rugby yeah certainly um, so you were clearly more keen on football. How did you get involved in football? Um, and why not rugby? Or maybe well, you were involved in all the sports. Oh, there was no option but rugby. <laughs> I, I was in the grammar school system, so there was no football at school. You were allowed, you had to play rugby. You, you, you could only play football in the sixth form. And I can remember with some trepidation, age 16, in the fifth form, or year 11 as it is these days, uh, asking the head of P if I, if I would be allowed to play for the school football team just a year up and he said well you better ask your father because he won't be happy so, so I went home and said to my dad dad it's now got something serious to say and he, and he said 
well, what have you done? You know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> what yeah. on earth have you done? And, and we sat down and I said, look, Dad, I want to play soccer instead of rugby. And he said, dear, dear, dear me. He said, call your mother. <laughs> it was like an emergency meeting. Yeah. Anyway, I was I was allowed to play football. So um, I started that way, but it had been rugby all the way through. Mm. I, I just, um, when I played with my friends for fun, I, I, I knew I was better at it than rugby. Yeah. So I just... I followed that path. I was, I was. The school were good with me then. I was allowed to go for uh, national schoolboy type trials, so it was, it was getting into the Welsh schoolboy team, that of course puts you in the shop window then for for professional clubs to yeah. see you. So that's how I got started. Really, fantastic. I used to love football. I have to say, yeah, myself as a young lad, love football. Man United were my team. George, George Best and all that. Ah, well, that's <laughs> now. Now we're talking real football, yeah. Nigel, not pretend football. <laughs> George Best. Now you moved from Cardiff to Cambridge. Um, you played both for Cambridge City Football Club and Cambridge United in mm. your twenties and thirties. What was it like being a professional footballer? Um, give us a taste mm. of the pressures, the highs, the lows, uh, the, the, the life of, a, of someone who's playing at that level. Mm. Well, I think there's probably a couple of things to say. The first thing to say is you, you have to differentiate the amount of money that people could earn at the very, very elite level, the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those days, in the 80s, it would be nowhere near what it is now, but it was yeah. still high. Yeah. If you played lower... So I played second, third, and fourth tiers, mm-hmm. not the top tier. So you make you make more money than an, perhaps you might say an average wage, yep. but the average length of a career is seven years. Gosh. And then you're unqualified for anything else. Uh, so most people who play professional football, the vast majority, even today, need a job when they retire. Yep. So I think that's the first thing to say that it it, it it becomes an anxious job. You sign one year contracts, two if you're very, very lucky and in demand. So even if it's a two year deal, by the time the first year's over, if the club hasn't offered you a new two year deal with yeah. a year to go, you yeah. think perhaps they don't really want me next year. Yeah. So it's a very anxious work. Mm. Uh, and therefore, there's a quite a lot of mental toughness resilience there's always people who can take your job you're old by the time you're 28 so they're the negative bits of it Uh, it's quite a tough life really uh, in some regards but of course on the other hand you train two or three hours a day Mm. and it's a lovely life in that sense so i think that's the overwhelming thing in the i'm 55 now and, and i've spent 30 years working with elite athletes so that's a pretty common thread. Mm. I think the second and more uh, light-hearted and optimistic side of it is that particularly if you become a Christian, there is this whole world of sports people who may not have heard of Christ. Yeah. And like my friend to me as an 18 to a 15-year-old, mm. the mm. common bond of a passion to play mm. gives you language and relationships, yeah. ordinary life relationships, where your knowing Christ can come through to them. I That's was, the strength. And I was going to ask, how do you work out your faith mm. in with with your with your football career? How does that work? So I guess there are things that go on not not just on the pitch but off the pitch, where you know we're going off to X, Y, and Z. And you you yeah. think you know what? I know where that's going, and I'm not sure sure I want to go with you guys. Yeah. I mean, how do you work that out? 
How did you work that out? Yeah, your I, Christian faith. Yeah, I don't think, Nigel. I, I, in one sense, now, now I, I can only talk as as a man. Women in sport face some of the same pressures, but some very different social pressures at elite sport level. So, I, I'm speaking as as a man, not because I wouldn't want to speak for women in sport, but my lived experiences as a guy playing yeah. professional soccer. Um. I don't think as a guy it's altogether too different from being in the army. You know, there's a sort of macho culture that goes with the world of professional soccer yeah. where you have to show toughness and act hard and not really give away any weaknesses because they can be exploited in the competition for places or if the coach sees chinks of weakness and you've got a big game Saturday and there's 30,000 people there and there's a pressure game, he might not pick you. So you have to present quite a tough front all the time. Mm. Uh, even if you didn't want to do something that the chaps were doing, you'd actually have to front it up quite tough and say, it's just a waste of time. I'm a Christian. I wouldn't do that. So it's quite hard to be sensitive in it, I think. Yes. But I don't know that it's that much different yeah. at a certain level. Yeah. However, and secondly... For the very top people, I've never been there. For the very, very top people, it must be really hard being a Christian. For example, you see, crass as it is, the sexual temptation, mm -hmm. pe people will throw themselves yeah. at an elite mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. A very famous person will have incredible pressures, mm -hmm. uh, particularly, I would say, sexual temptation, mm -hmm. that the rest of sports people wouldn't have. Yeah. Uh, and I've watched that close up, and I, I've seen the way that people would proposition famous players. And boy, if you don't have somebody with you mm -hmm. or you're on a bit of a down because mm -hmm. you've had a bad mm -hmm. few games mm -hmm. or you're a bit sad mm -hmm. with your performance, mm -hmm. wow. So it, and that's something, of course, I've never experienced, but I think that could be really tough, male and female. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what was your greatest achievement, would you say, looking back on your football career? Uh, well, I'm in the Guinness Book of Records with Cambridge United for um, 84 to 6. Or, <laughs> are uh, you? Yeah, we are because, uh, oh, I know, 80, 83, 84, we, we, we played um, 33 or 31 or 33 games, consecutive games, and didn't win any. Uh, <laughs> so I'm in the Guinness Book of Records for that. <laughs> Brilliant. So if you're talking, what did I win? I won I, that. I thought you were going to say we didn't lose a yeah. single match. That, that's really we brilliant. lost them all. No, we didn't lose them all. We oh. drew about four. Oh. Uh, He's a humble man. <laughs> uh, no, it's just true. Oh. Uh, I, I look back now and I think, you, you think of all kinds of things that you might think were achievements. I, I, I really do think, well, my, my boyhood hero is Kevin Keegan. Yeah. Uh, I like Liverpool as a little boy uh, and I happened to get to play. He played for Newcastle in the last year of his playing career. They were in the what's now the championship. They went back to the top league. We were relegated, but we played at their ground. So it, there was no achievement involved. It was just the most spectacular feeling to walk out onto St. James's Park full with Newcastle top of the league and Keegan standing right there wow. and playing. Yeah. We, we lost 2-1, uh, but I scored. <laughs> oh, not bad. I got a goal. Um, you never did. Yeah, I got a goal. Did so, you? Um, and you, you, you were midfielder and left, left back. Left, left. Yeah, so I was. Were, so that was... Uh... Yeah, I have no idea how it happened. <laughs> it, it trickled in somehow. But if I have to think back 
of a moment when you just felt, oh gosh, out of this is the greatest dream ever. Mm. That was the moment. I, I, I have to say, becoming a Christian and having other colleagues who I played with or coached with, actually see their eyes open to Christ, mm. uh, has been an, a highlight that's just gone on and on sure. because it's been part of my world. And, and that's always a great thrill. Mm, wonderful. Now, you you uh, went into various management roles in football. You also worked uh, for the BBC uh, as a broadcaster. Mm. Um, how did you get involved with Christians and sport? Tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah. Uh, what what's the purpose of Christians and sport? Um, and what do you see God doing through through the ministry? Um, I think at the heart of my work for Christians and sport is pretty much the way you've asked me questions. Um, the name's on the tin, isn't it? It, it? It's it's knowing there's a world here, there's a subculture, there are lots of subcultures, but there's a, a group, the New Testament, in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, the Lord Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, ethne, ethnic, people groups, languages, tribes, tongues. Well, sport is an ethne. <laughs> so, so in that sense, whether it's young children playing on the touchline with a Sunday sport challenge, mum and dad, which is a huge one in our culture, through to the kind of people we've talked about, the George Bests of this world. Um, somewhere in there, there's there's a big people group that mm. needs to know of Christ. Mm. So Christians in sport mm. helps lead people to Christ. And when we know people who are Christians, we help them to see that God has made them with a vocation for this world. Mm. So in all sorts of ways, that's what Christians in sport actually does. Right, and so you 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 operate the Christian Sport Network operates in uh, across all spectrums and schools and universities or outreach events. Yes, it it if you like, there's a bottom line here in the UK specifically. Mm. Anyway, we know from figures from the government and, and Sports England and and so on, the national sports bodies, that there are. 150,000 registered sports clubs, tennis, hockey, football, cricket, registered with governing bodies in this country. Mm. And they have 10 million members. Gosh. So it's a lot. Yeah. So obviously your tennis club, mm. my football club, mm. are two of those 150,000 clubs. We may have various teams, yeah. levels of teams, but the clubs are registered. Yeah, interesting. Um, so in that sense, these could be clubs with young people playing in, through to the elite, through to university sports people, uh, amateurs. Mm. We're constantly saying, what believers do we know at any age or level of those clubs? So this is the specific thing that could help people within their secular organized sports club here of Christ. Mm. So any looking at the Bible one-to-one mm -hmm. through to a guest event, a big sports quiz with a speaker, a testimony, all those methods or means yeah. are there because that's our mission field, that very specific niche of sports clubs yeah. in our country. Very good. Now, I know you travel widely, um, not just in the UK, but also overseas. Just a um, quick question, taking the opportunity, really. How would you characterize the spiritual state of our nation at this time? I know it's a, maybe a bit of a tough question to ask because, yeah. of course, it's... You know, there's some probably good bits and lots of good bits, but yeah. from what you, from your angle, what, what would you say? 
Well, I think probably two things. The context point, as you say, Nigel, is when you're in different parts of the world, because the network of sport, of course, exists as a global network. Uh, and on some of the things we'll work on, the tennis tour, or athletics, uh, people are away for huge periods of their lives, the golf tours. So you have to travel with them. We have people who travel with them because local church is so much harder mm. for them. So in the work, you do get to look in on your own context and your own country a little bit. Um, inevitably, people feel Europe is struggling and the stats show that uh, uh, gospel work and faith, evangelical truths in Europe uh, are very poor. Uh, there's a paucity of real things happening. However, secondly, I think when you're inside our culture, I have to say after 30 odd years of being a Christian, that's all, but after 30 odd years of being a Christian, I feel more optimistic than I can ever remember. It, it almost feels as if uh, somewhere around my generation, your my generation somewhere, it feels like we've bottomed out the spiritual desert the nominal Christianity that we'd have grown up with in the mid and early, mm. if you're around in the early 20th century, I think that nominalism has gone. I mean, there's always going to be traces of nominal church attendance. So I, I think it's hard to be inoculated against the gospel now. You, know, you could have had enough of it to not know it <laughs> and not get Christ. Mm. And I think that's pretty much gone. So, so I find myself now, because a lot of my life will be spent with people in their 20s and 30s simply because of sport yep. teens 20s and 30s i'm seeing so much ease of spiritual hunger so easy to talk about spirituality now that does mean the spirituality is broad and the conversations about spirituality aren't the traditional christian framework to them but i'm finding more and more people want to know about christ when you talk about him than i can ever remember so it is a slice, isn't it? It's it's not the definitive fact. It's my perspective. Yeah. But but even a couple of days before this interview, I, I sat in a restaurant of a friend's in Cambridge, where from a bunch of football clubs, we pulled together a small number of people uh, one night a week, and it's a room that could seat twelve to fifteen, and there were four of us, three who are quite new believers, uh, and friends doing an inductive Bible study. Uh, <laughs> and we may come back to that, but when you talk about the work of precept, well, I'll, I'll let you take me there when you're ready, but the inductive Bible study is is dynamite, just dynamite for letting people see Christ. It, it, is, dyn it is the best, best thing that I've learned is to use inductive Bible study with people who are, even mildly interested, mm. uh, but I can elaborate on that. Well, I was going to say, you know, you've been connected with the ministry for, for a little while. Um, two questions, really. How did you first come across the work of Precept? And maybe a little bit expanding on what you were talking about. Why why is it so helpful to people, people coming to faith? Mm. You said mildly interested, but those actually that want to go yeah. even deeper. Yeah. So how do you first connect and why why is it so helpful for people? When I, uh, in my later 20s, mm. I did theological training. Yes. Um, because I just felt I needed to be better equipped. Uh, I, I I thought my life would be spent sharing the gospel day in, day out. So, so I, I trained for church ministry and so on. 
in the course of that training, I was taught a lot of skills, how to exegete the passage, how to get inside a passage. I was taught about the God's big picture from Genesis to Revelation. You learn systematic things, the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of the spirit. Those things took three or four years to work on. And I've always been in churches where we'd have a, a mantra that says, let God's word do God's work. Preaching was at the heart of the service and an exposition of a passage. Somewhere, and I'm not quite sure where, in my later 30s, so not you know, I wasn't that young really, it started to dawn on me that we say let God's word do God's work from the pulpit, which is right and proper, we ask people to share their faith. But actually, if the greatest way to share your faith is to open scripture, and you have to do a three or four year course to be able to understand how to open scripture, there's something wrong there. So I actually started to research online. Is there anybody who's actually making Bible study simple and yet serious Bible study? Mm for the not yet Christian, or indeed the Christian, yep. that they could do themselves. Yep. And I came across the precept ministry in the US, mm -hmm. and I followed that for a bit, you know, and started getting the materials and started playing. Mm. And then, I, it's not altogether that long ago, when I got in touch with you and Molly, mm. because I worked out there was a British mm. base. And then at that point, we started chatting and, and messing around and playing and... Mm. I've used so uh, the little 40-minute study mm -hmm. on being a disciple. Mm -hmm. I'm in the midst of that now with uh, five or six of the people who work with elite athletes for Christians in sport. We have an hour on a Friday where we're just working through it and then people are working through it with their friends and practicing and trying. Oh, so that's how it came about. And let me go back to that last, the previous answer then. Um, I think... Precept has helped me find something that without any hesitation I can I can put in the hands obviously the different degrees the PUPs uh, will be different again and I brought people for training with you yeah. on that yeah. but the range of materials are so predicated on the one thing that counts letting the scripture speak for itself to all of us genius just genius uh, that's what I'm excited about spiritual opportunities yeah. amazing mm. And I think also, just as, I mean, um, you went to university. I didn't go to university. Yeah. And so I think it, it also caters for people that may not see themselves necessarily as academic, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, not everybody can go to Bible college. That's right. You know. That's so, right. So. Um, yeah. And so yeah. often it's the king's new clothes, you know, that parable where the child has to say the king's well-dressed when he's naked. I mean, I think you've hit on something really important here. One, of course, IQ isn't the slightest bit related to certain levels of education. IQ is IQ. Education is just training to do things in a certain way. It's mm. a form of training. Mm. At the heart of this question is that the scripture itself, you don't need four years. You need to learn the tools of yeah. marking and listing yeah. and applying. Yeah. That's it. That can be learned in half a day. Mm. Mm. And it can be built on with ease. That's why the priest, uh, really, I'm not saying it because I'm on the mm, podcast. Mm, you know I'm here mm, because of the benefits I've seen in Christians in sport yeah. from precept materials. Yeah, fantastic. Wonderful. Now, um, 
you sort of hinted at it, but I'm going to ask you just this question. Mm. Why, why is the Bible important to you? So there may be people listening to this thinking, yeah, yeah. the Bible, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you said it, but I'm mm. going to ask you that specific question. No, why is it so important? Um, yeah. uh, uh, there's, a, there's a negative part of the answer and a positive. The negative is, when I first was a Christian... I think I started to believe my own hype that I might speak to a youth group as a, a local footballer who happened to be a professional and my story would have be interesting to a young person because it involves sport and as time goes by you, you think well I'll talk about Jesus I'll tell people about Jesus I'll, I'll pick a story and tell it or I'll give a bit of testimony but in due course you work out that though God uses that that is not spiritual power. I mean, as simple as that. It's not spiritual power. Spiritual power is in the words of Jesus, the apostles and the prophets, in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, inspired by the Spirit. That's what God did. So why on earth would you think that you bring spiritual power based on your own charisma or ability? Not in my case, looks. <laughs> but, you know, in somebody's looks or presence or fame or... It's absolutely useless thinking. So the Bible is where the power is. And therefore, second of two, the power isn't even in me telling another person what the Bible says. This beautiful thing of opening up a simple book with a scripture double-spaced on it and letting somebody read that for themselves and get inside the head of the author and saying, Okay, so what words does he use a lot of? And how does that paragraph divide? And what do you think the big idea is? And what do you think that means for you? Oh, my word. <laughs> there is, that is the source of all spiritual power. So that's why the Bible is important. Otherwise, it hinges on my ability, yeah. which is pathetic, obviously. That's why it matters so much. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, do you have a... Uh, of all the 66 books in the Bible, mm, mm. Uh, do you have a favourite book? Mm. <laughs> I, 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 of course, uh, I, I'm, always, I'm always curious when you ask this question on your podcast because I think, how are they going to answer that one? <laughs> or favourite verse? How are they going to get there? Yeah. No, there are things that stick with you from different periods of life, of course, mm. uh, and books and experiences. As I mentioned at the beginning, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sin. That struck me massively when I got converted. Mm. For, for me, it has to be the Gospels. Um, um, I have a little pattern. I do think people should think how busy lives are and what patterns we can make for evangelism and disciple-making. So mine is a very simple pattern. The football season starts around August. Uh, in my own city in Cambridge and in other cities around the country now, we just invite sports people from that city who are Christians, to bring their friends to a sports quiz. It's a very easy, light, well-done quiz with a 10-minute gospel talk in the middle. We, I personally then invite people to Christmas carol services, but I, I get a friend to get a house with drinks and nibbles afterwards. And then I use that to trigger January, February, March, April, May, five months, work through a gospel, pick a story, uh, the woman who lets her hair down and cries at Jesus' feet in Luke 7. Yep. 
we double we printed on one page of A5, double spaced, coloured pens, off you go. Mark the page. We we have a bite to eat, we sit down, we pass the paper round, groups of four, four or five, one if it if it's five, one, if it's six, two always new believers who did this a year earlier, they lead it, and off we go. And we go to Easter. And if people still want to stay in the room after Easter, we do once a week for six weeks and we take an epistle and we work through an epistle, marking and listing mm. and digging out. And then I'll say to those people, now, it's the summer now, football season's off, let's leave it. See you in October, but don't forget we've got a quiz, the quiz that you came to. <laughs> See, but, but by the time a year goes round, yeah. if you've opened scripture, yeah. it does its own work. Yeah. God draws who he wants to. Mm. But for people who are drawn to him, who want to be a disciple of Jesus now, and of course, you've put in their hands because of precept material, the simplest form of the most profound understanding of the Bible, and you can give them a chance to do it yeah. themselves. Fantastic. Oh, it is fantastic. So it's the Gospels for me, yeah. because they're the, you're introducing the story of Jesus, mm -hmm. and you can coach boys, in my case, to pass that on to their pals whilst watching it happen over dinner. And I'm sure we could spend another week just talking about the stories that have come as a result of oh, that. Oh, couldn't the, be just, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I would want to say, Nigel, you know, because these things can sound triumphalistic when you don't know a person being interviewed. Mm. This is hard yards. I mean, this isn't revival. You know, I'm not seeing scores of people converted here. Mm. I'm talking two or three people in a year is a general thing that I find. Yeah. But it's the training of those two or three people in inductive Bible study and discipleship and disciple making that is the greatest thrill. So I wouldn't want anyone to think this is remarkable and it's remarkable because God saved some people yeah. and I've got the resources with my precept materials to train them to do it with others. Yeah. We'll see one day what God does Amen. with that. Amen. And you may be one of those people, maybe the next Billy Graham or Absolutely. the next whoever, who knows? And the Lord knows that. Who knows but him. Yeah. It's yeah. being faithful to do what you can do That's all. in the context that you're in. That's it. And it's, that, that is so important, isn't it? Because it, it's so important. Triumphalism of vanity is a waste of space here. Just get the scripture open. Be faithful. Let people see Christ on the pages of scripture and let the Holy Spirit do his work. That's the job we have. Amen to that. Amen. Um, what would you say to someone who's a sportsman, keen sportsman, they're not a believer? Mm. Uh, but they have some sort of interest in spiritual things. Um, why, what would you say to that person? And I know you're dealing with these folks all the time. Yeah. Somebody listening in, they maybe just tuned into this and, yeah. oh, I'm a sportsman. I don't know much about Christian yeah. faith. Or what, what would you say to them? If I was speaking, it's, it's, I've always got two contexts, haven't I? If I'm, if I'm front, if if it's somebody just listening in at all, just listening and picking this up, uh, I would say. One, get in touch with you uh, because you can put them face to face with something where they can meet Jesus on the page of the Bible. So the most important thing they do is to get hold of you after this podcast. I mean, nothing could be more important than that. And give them to me if you want to. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. If I met somebody in person, yeah. um, and I think this is just the sheer normality of being a Christian, I, I'd actually want to combine two things. I want to be better at being normal. If they were a very famous sports person, I wouldn't ask them for an autograph or a signed shirt or a ticket to a game or a selfie because everybody does. Hmm. Everybody does. 
So if it was an elite sports person, I would say, how very nice to meet you, Mr. Very Famous Premier League player. Hey, uh, if he was an older guy, uh, are you married? Have you got kids? Have you got a partner? Probably more likely these days, isn't it? Uh, yes. Oh, what's her name? Joanne. Oh, great. So did she come to London with you from Manchester? Or I'd ask about the family. Uh, with these elite people, hardly anyone, the partner, wife, husband, they can be standing right on their shoulder and they, they're just as if they're not there. You see, that's what happens. So if you show interest in the family of an elite sports person, you are, they'll walk away and they'll know who you are next time you see them. So I think you've got to be really good at being person-centered yeah. first. Yeah. And, and then the trust level is so hard to build with famous sports people. So you've ju you, know, you can go years. If you get a text, you just say, text, how are you? How's things? How's Pete, your little boy who's not been well? Hey, I'm in Manchester or London in a couple of weeks. Uh, I could call by for a coffee if you like. Never asked to go to a game. I never go and watch them at a game. I go to their home. So this is, what is it? It's elementary working out how to be authentic yeah. with people. Yeah. And then I will ask quite early on, actually, once there's a level of trust, uh, I'll do it something like this. Uh, we'll, I'll ask if they've ever been to church. And they often know. So have you ever thought about it? Well, not really. Why? Oh, I'm a, I've been a Christian for 30 years and, uh, you know, I just love the way you think about things and it just might be something that picks your imagination sometimes. Generally, I, I, they'll say, yeah, no, not really, not for me. Mm. If it's not for me, you have to live with that. Mm. You know, that's mm. a lot of the harvest job. Mm. If there's even a hint of warmth, I'll say, can I email you one story Jesus told? I'll email you a story. And they'll always say, what do you mean a story Jesus told? <laughs> I'll say, I'll take a little bit from one of the books of the Bible. There are four accounts of his life. I'm going to take one story out. I'll send it to you on an email. Have a read of it. And next time I see you, if you want to, we can chat about the story. It's the timing of that. Mm -hmm. You see, but you go straight to scripture. And honestly, Nigel, it's just fantastic. People will say, oh, I thought it was going to be much longer. It's a parable. Yeah. So what do you make of it? Yeah, do you know, I didn't get that bit about the, um, the seed and that. No, I've done this with boys who grew up in rural environments and I've sent them the parable of the sower. So, yeah, but that wouldn't happen today, Daniel, because there'd be a machine. And you're off, you see. <laughs> but there, I, And I'll always have a copy in my pocket. So I'll always have an A5 hard copy of that. And I'd always say, oh, where do you see that then about the odd bit about not a machine? And you'll go, there. I say, what number is that? Oh, 35. Oh, verse 35. Yeah, the story's off. It can be five minutes, ten minutes. God speaks through his word. So it's a long answer to, but I would really <laughs> encourage people to think about asking a question about spirituality, faith, church, something. Work out the temperature of the answer yes. and decide what to do with a fork in the road, whether you ask another question. Yeah. So at its, the worst thing that happens is that I'll say to somebody, Hey, good. How's it going? Yeah, how are you, Dano? Yeah, good. How did you do at the weekend? Oh, I saw the kids Sunday. We're divorced. We played Saturday. We saw the kids Sunday. What about you, Dano? Oh, I went to church Sunday. I had a really good talk about anger. Have you ever been to church, Johnny? Uh, uh, yeah, funny enough. 
But if the worst thing happens and he says, nah, you say, ever thought about it? Ever thought about religion or faith? Or, nah, mate, not the slightest bit interested. Yeah, okay. You're training Tuesday. Who have you got next Saturday? Boom. You're just normal. Yeah. But don't bottle asking. Mm. Don't bottle asking. Don't, do not negotiate. Do not negotiate who's going to be spiritually warm because you just don't know. It's not your call. But know what to say when the answer comes back in a tone or register that isn't warm to another question. If you live with people all the time and you relate to people, you can say, oh, what exercise are we on next week? Or where are you being deployed? Or what's the next game? Or who's the cl- what clients have you got tomorrow? Just know the way out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, be, normal. Good be normal. Be good at being normal. Yeah, fantastic. Hmm. What I love about you is your passion <laughs> for the Lord and your, I think, your sensitivity to know um, what to say, when to say. It. And of course, Jesus is our model of that, isn't he? Our hmm. Absolute model. And also, um, what's an encouragement to us, I guess, as, as a ministry is. Um, your encouragement to get people into the Word of God and the power of the Word of God mm. and uh, and uh, really um, your humility in that. So it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. God bless you and all the work you're doing with Christians in sport uh, across this country and I know in many other countries as well. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you today. Nigel, thank you very much. And uh, I really do mean this. The work, uh, the work that you do with Precept is absolutely invaluable and I would encourage anyone listening just be evangelistic about the gospel first, but about mm. precept material second, because the scriptures really can speak in a way that nothing else can quite give us. So thank you. Honoured. And thank you. Okay. You have been listening to The Bible and Me podcast by Precept Ministries UK. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button now and consider leaving us a rating or review. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry or make a donation, visit www precept.org.uk or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at PreceptMinUK.